You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. I'm going to take your attention to the book of Genesis chapter number six. And uh, we're going through our series, Origins, A Study of Beginnings. And we're walking through Genesis chapters 1 through 11. We're looking at a a lot of the first mention of things. And tonight we come to one of the most contested passages of Scripture, perhaps. Uh, There is not a a collective uh, 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 belief or view, interpretation on some of the things that we will be reading tonight, even within not only the whole of Christendom, but even within... Uh, oneness Pentecostal ranks. And so there are uh, differences of views and interpretations here. And the Bible, we're trying to interpret uh, an ancient text uh, and some of the finer details in a modern uh, view, uh, a modern day, uh, I guess, uh, uh, perspective, if I could say it that way. And so I am, uh, as your pastor, taking you to a text that usually is not the text of a message or a sermon. And so we're going to go through Genesis chapter number 6. And that's what I love about uh, uh, um, expository teaching, is as you walk through the Scripture, it forces us to read Scriptures and passages that a lot of times we'd flip over, we'd skip over, we wouldn't pay attention to. And we do, we are unified in this, that we do believe that the Word of God is the inspired Word of God. It is God-breathed, and that all Scripture, amen? All Scripture, the emphasis there on all, is given to us, amen, by God, and it is profitable for doctrine. And so that's for our beliefs, for our understanding. So, I'm coming to you today, and uh, after many years, I guess you could say, uh, in a certain sense of study, I do have so many limitations, and um, I I don't uh, have perfect understanding in all things. I see through a glass darkly, I guess if I could say it that way. But I am going to do my best as your pastor, amen, to walk us through here, and I do think that there are some implications while... This will be interesting, and mentally, it'll be an interesting thing that we walk through. I want the Word of God to touch our heart tonight and not just uh, be a mental exercise. I don't just want to walk through the text uh, that God's given us as a mental exercise and walk out and say, well, I choose this point, or I choose this point, or I choose... And, and then and we miss the point of what God is trying to do in our heart. And everybody said, in Jesus' name... In Jesus' name, God, anoint your hearing, amen, and the speaking of the word to our ears tonight. Let's go to Genesis chapter number 6, and we're picking up right where we left off. I believe that this is week 17. I'm not sure, but I think it is. They're giving me a thumbs up, so I think my counting is right. And I want to read the first seven verses tonight. I want to read them in one reading, and then we'll go back. And we've come through chapters 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel, the fall of man uh, in sin. The uh, uh, Then, yeah, that's the, that was the wrong one. Flip that 
Thank you. There you go. Got it. Um, the fall of man and sin, and then when uh, uh, the lineage is given there of Cain, no time stamp, no years, no measure. And we have this two prevailing views we talked about. That's where we're at. For those of you that weren't here, just try to catch you back up. Uh, it presents two tracks, if you will. The ungodliness of Cain and then the righteousness or the attempt of righteousness of Seth. And we're left at the end of chapter 4 after Seth is born and, and his son, it says, uh, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. That's in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 26. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Then in chapter 5, it goes all throughout Seth's lineage, and we see some prevailing righteousness, most prominently Enoch. He walked with God and was not. That's significant. Uh, uh, and then uh, Enoch names his son Methuselah, which we're not totally certain that, but, but many uh, uh, believe that that means that there is a judgment that is coming uh, after he dies. And so that was sort of his name, prophesied about that. And then Methuselah would have a son named Lamech. And Laman, Lamech prophetically names his son. Uh, so whether he had an encounter with God, it doesn't seem that he was just hopeful thinking, but he names his son Noah, which means rest. And so there's this righteousness that seems to prevail through the lineage. And now we come to chapter number six, and this is where it continues. So it's important that we put that in context. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. So let's pause right there. Now, God commanded them that they would be fruitful and to multiply, to go, to go everywhere. So now there is something that is noted here. There is an, a, 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 an explosive growth. It is exponential. And of course, multiplication, multiplication is exponential. So in the beginning, if it starts with Adam and Eve, it's a slow start. But then it comes to this place where it rapidly increases. And of course, we see that today in uh, our world. So when men, so he's setting the time when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, okay, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. Verse 4, There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons, <coughs> when the sons of God came in, unto the daughters of men, and they bear children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man 
whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. And let's read verse 7 if we can and stop there, or verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Wow, there's a whole lot in that. whole lot in that. Significant. Uh, some main point overviews I think would be worth noting first. I think for us to look at the big picture, let's highlight, if you will, some of the big picture items that are necessary to really understand this passage before we just jump into trying to dissect the details. The first quick overview takeaway is the wickedness of man. The wickedness of man. It is literally as if the world is too far gone. It's too far gone. That God gets to the place where, and we'll, we'll expound on this, where it pains him. It repenteth him. It pains him. The regret. He cannot stand to see it anymore. Now think about that in context. Think of how wicked, how, how wickedness prevails in our earth today. Think of how wicked hearts and things are that are happening in the world today that we know. And yet, in contrast, Genesis chapter 6 says, God says, the omniscient God, mind you, says, I cannot stand to see this anymore. It's too far gone. In verse 5, he literally says, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's no pause in his wickedness. It's not like he's wicked a lot of the time, but then sometimes he sure knows how to be nice. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the big takeaway that we can see here is that the world is lost in wickedness. It is so lost in wickedness. It's so overrun. There is this gross perversion that has taken place. This, uh, the sons of God looked upon the daughters of men and saw that they were fair and took unto them wives. There is this literal, let's state the obvious, there is a lust of the eye. There is this prevailing. The, the lust of the eye has drawn them. They are taking all of whom they choose. So what does this mean? Some suggest that maybe this was uh, uh, the expounding of polygamy and other kinds of immorality that's taking place. Whatever's going on, there is mass uh, sexual perversion that is going on in this, in this place. Another view or another point to consider, another overview fact, is that excommunicating and isolating Cain did not work. Cain sins in chapter 4. And notice that his sin was so great, the Bible says that God set a mark upon him and sends him out. And Cain says, look, I am. So, it was so significant, whatever God does in there, however 
uh, uh, that actually played out. It was so significant that Cain says, whoever sees me is going to kill me. There was some, they're, they're going to be immediately drawn to kill me. And so God sets his mark on him so that whoever killed him would be uh, uh, punished also. And so Cain's living this life, and he's in excommunication. There's a separation, and that's how we're left. In chapter 4, Cain goes and lives his life. In chapter 5, Seth is living his life. But something happens here in the time frame where wickedness prevails, and it's so predominant and it's so overrun. Another big overview takeaway that we can see here uh, um, is that God, there's a time span that's unaccounted for, that we, or, or not unaccounted for, that's mentioned, but we can't measure. And that is in verse number three. Look at what it says in verse number three. It says, the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that uh, he also is flesh, yet his day shall be in 120. Now some... Some believe that perhaps this was God designating that in 120 uh, years, I am going to destroy the earth. Uh, but probably the first interpretation of this is that it seems that God puts a limit to perhaps man's lifespan. Up until this point, they lived uh, um, rather a long time. And so God seems to put uh, um, shorten their lifespan. However that's interpreted there, God is, is making a statement in his weariness. Then the, the other thing, and I've already said this, is that the omnipresent, or the omniscient rather, the omniscient God regrets what he sees. He repented. That, that literally could also mean he's not comforted. There's no comfort when he looks upon what's upon them. So God does not repent in the same way that we repent. We repent. We change. We make a turn. God uh, is God. He's absolute. And God tells us very emphatically that He is God and He does not change. Right? He does not change. And so we know that. We understand that. So God is not repenting in the sense that He made a mistake. Now, has anybody made a mistake in the last 24 hours? Have you done something you thought, I really shouldn't have done that? Something you messed up. Why, you ever, why did I do that? What was, what was I thinking? Or you've done things and you repent. You, you acknowledge a mistake. God does not acknowledge a mistake. He's not acknowledging a mistake here. It's impossible. He's omniscient. He knew this was going to happen when he, when, he, when he created everything in the beginning. But what does this illustrate? God has emotions. He's absolute in his being, but he has emotions. We are made in the image of God. So God has emotions. So, amen. So we can't come to church and not have emotions and say, well, I just don't have emotions. God has emotions. God gets angry. God is grieved. In fact, that's how it's translated here in a little bit. It grieved him. God has emotions. What should that teach us right there? 
Well, that should teach us that God is not indifferent to our actions. God is not indifferent to our actions. He feels when we sin. He feels when we live righteous. He feels when we worship. He feels, amen, when we sacrifice with a pure heart. He feels when we compromise. He feels when we cheat. God is not indifferent. And here we see that it came to such a place that God says, I repent and I will destroy man for what I have created. That's, that's probably incredible for us to wrap our minds around. And finally, finally what we understand, the big takeaway is that God does, God does decide to reset creation with one family. That's a pretty big point of this passage. So anything else we talk about and anything else we uh, disagree over and anything else that we may take opposing views on, these are things that we must understand, that we take away, that we walk away with. Now, we, that, this all begs the questions for us to ask then, what did happen and who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men? And this is really, this is really the challenge. This is really uh, uh, the critical points here. And, and uh, I, I, am, uh, I speak English only and not very well. Uh, I can read it some. So I, I don't know the, the ancient Hebrews and Greeks and all those different things. But with our modern day uh, resources and tools that we have, you, you have an advantage probably in the English language more than any other language in the world to be able to look and, and to assess and to draw from. So I want to highlight tonight, we're going to highlight three main interpretations of this passage of Scripture in the sense specific of what happened, but specifically who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men. So we're going to highlight three different interpretations I may throw a fourth in there for you as well. And then I'm going to give you uh, some, some uh, points to consider and then why I draw my conclusion to where I draw my conclusion at. And so this is interesting. Uh, and I, this is an interesting exercise because I normally wouldn't do this. This does not have any bearing on uh, your eternal well-being. I think the overview points that we talked about, I could exhaust them a little bit more and we could talk about. But every... Uh, word of Scripture is given to us. Every Scripture is profitable. And so I do think that we have to be good stewards with the Word of God. And so this exercise, by doing anything, I want to try to uh, illustrate to be a good steward. Now, if you would be the good steward and come to a different conclusion, I'm not condemning you for that, but we want to be good stewards. So the three, three main interpretations, let's say the three most common interpretations, are going to be this. And uh, let, let, me, let me just do them here, right here, as I have them in order. The first interpretation that uh, 
I'm going to give to you, and I'm going to switch these around here because of the way that I have them here. The first interpretation that I'm going to give to you is that the sons of God, let's go back here in verse 2, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And then go, if you will, from verse 2 to verse 4. There were giants in the earth in those days, and and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were old men of renown. So the first interpretation of this passage of Scripture, which may rather shock some of you, is that the sons of God are angelic beings. And that angelic beings came down and saw the daughters of men, which that's self-explanatory, and uh, took them as wives. And the sons of God or, and the daughters of men had uh, the, this special offspring that seemed to be, and, and we're interpreting this here, became mighty men which were of old, men of renown, men of name. They were notable. They, there seems to be... Uh, mighty men, there seems to be this extra strength or something that is significant about them that makes them different than just the average Joe, uh, if you will. And they would then say in verse 4, it says there were giants. That word translates uh, Nephilim. I'm probably not saying that right, but the Nephilim. And so sometimes you probably you may have heard something Nephilim. If you go to YouTube and Type in who are the Nephilim. Don't do that. You'll, you'll be down a rabbit hole for hour, days and weeks and months and years. And there's all kinds of prevailing opinions on that, that these giants perhaps were even the offspring of these angelic beings and, and uh, these women's, uh, uh, these men. And so this also matches ancient mythology, Hittite traditions in Asia Minor, and there were a lot of old uh, ancient uh, type traditions or mythologies that would sort of talk about this, and so this was acceptable. Now, this is the prevailing interpretation of Scripture from Jewish tradition, ancient Jewish tradition. They, they would believe this. This was common uh, to them. Uh, primarily, the prevailing reason why that is so is the phrase sons of God is only used a few times And when it is used, for instance, in the book of Job, it is clearly speaking to uh, angelic beings uh, that are not human. It's used in other parts of Scripture as well, Daniel and other places. And then the phrase Nephilim in verse 4 is only used three times at all in the Old Testament. And so there are, you'd be shocked, you'd be shocked at a lot of uh, uh, very contemporary uh, preachers today that would believe, I say you'd be shocked because the average person in Christianity doesn't even always sometimes know that this kind of interpretation even exists. That they believe there was sort of this superhuman race or uh, that's prevalent on the earth. And of course, they uh, uh, one of the big overarching points, depending on how you interpret the flood, they all die in the flood, so it doesn't really matter, and we don't know, except for the fact that um, there are giants after the flood that come out of Ham's lineage. 
And so some people that believe, well, okay, the giants only came about from this crazy thing that these angels did something to Ham's wife when, before she got on the ark, and that's how the giants were able to prevail, the sons of Anak and, and other ones. Now, there's other variants of that and, and, and different kinds of interpretations. So that has been the prevailing interpretation, and even some in early Christianity would interpret that as well. The second view that I want to present is that the sons of God refer to the righteous, the more righteous lineage of Seth, that they are those who are calling on the name of the Lord. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And that those sons of God in that context now forsake their righteous ways and they walk after the lust of their flesh and they fall into gross immorality and they take the daughters of men uh, uh, as opposed to the sons of God, those that are unrighteous. And because uh, good... Uh, does not redeem bad, but more often bad will quicker, quickly corrupt good. More than good will redeem the bad. The world fell into wickedness. And so they lusted after them with their eyes, and this is what's going on. The third interpretation is that the sons of God are other children that were born to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and so they, they existed alongside Cain and Abel. And because they did not sin, uh, but Cain and Abel, uh, Abel passes away and, and Cain sinned, that they are this pre-curse humans still living in this certain context. And that's why these sons of God, when they mingle with the daughters of men, they create these mighty men, men of renown. Uh, so those are probably, I, let's say, the three most common. There's others as well. I can't remember. It may have been you, Brother Clayton, that, that first put me on to another view that believes that the, the sons of God and the daughters of men were actually, instead of a, a physical union, but actually a, a, a a demonic possession. I can't remember if we had talked about that or not. Maybe not. You're looking at me, and I don't know if we did or not. But there is a viewpoint that believes that this does not talk about that in any way, but it was just when it says in verse 5 that they, uh, uh, see verse 4, when they came in unto them, that literally it means entered. And so what you have is a world that is full of demonic possession and God hates this so much that God repents and it pains him. And he decides that he's going to hit the reset button on all of humanity. So there are other views as well. I think that that, that last view that I just gave you, I think it is a great stretch because the, the, the scripture specifically says they looked on them so it denotes the lust of the eye. And then it also says that they took them wives. And some say, well, maybe wives is the wrong word that's interpreted there. But, but I think you're really trying to, to mess with Scripture to fit your interpretation. And that is a dangerous thing, no matter whether we are in Genesis chapter number 6 or whether we are in Acts chapter number 2. 
And so we don't want to just take scripture and say, this is what I think. And so I'm going to, let's see how, so let's wrestle with this. So let me give you here some points to consider. Some points to consider. First of all, the emphasis on this passage in this text constantly refers to men, flesh, and man. The emphasis of the text is men, flesh, and man. And when it came, and it came to pass when men, uh, uh, he says, my, my spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. And then he's talking about here in verse 4, they became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. In verse 5, God saw the wickedness of man, and it repented God that he had made man on the earth. And God, the Lord said, I will destroy man. So there is this emphasis that keeps coming back to man, and it comes back to flesh. So there's a significant thing that's going on here. God is dealing with man. That's the first thing I'd like to, for you to highlight. Number two, the second point that I think we have to consider is that this scripture here is not simply saying that men and women had sexual relations. It does not say that that simply. So something more than what is to be assumed and normal in the prior passages, is taking place. It means something. So that is significant. It uses the unique terms, sons of God and daughters of men. So it is juxtaposing something here. It has significance. He's trying to say something. Three, the third point to consider, which we already highlighted in the emphasis, is that the punishment is only upon man in the earth and not angels or angels in heaven or any other thing. But the punishment is uniquely upon man that it's highlighted. So God is dealing with man here. So man has done something. There is no other punishment or other curse. In the garden, we have the serpent that comes uh, uh, <laughs> as Satan, that great that great tempter, he comes and he tempts Eve, and the Lord is going to speak to Eve and he's going to speak to Adam, but not before he first curses the serpent. And so here, the punishment is only upon man. I think that's unique. Number four, the fourth thing to consider here is that nowhere... In Scripture, does it hint or suggest that angelic beings procreate or that angelic beings and flesh could procreate? The Scripture never suggests that. Now, we do see times where angels are there, and the Bible says that we would uh, uh, entertain angels unaware. So what does that mean? That means you could see an angel and not know it. You could mistake it. We also know that when angels appear uh, uh, before Abraham, when they come to Abraham later on in Genesis, uh, uh, he fed them and they ate. I, I always wanted to know, what do you feed angels if they come? 
he fed them and they ate. Does anybody know what they what he fed them? Not angel food cake. No, that is that did not exist back then. Does anybody know what he fed them? Does anybody know what he fed them? You want to? I, I wrote this down. This this is if you guys are curious about how my daily devotional journal looks. I read that passage and I wrote down one year. What do you feed angels? Like, you know, what do you feed angels? He fed them cottage cheese. Did you know that? It was curds, right? Curds, cottage cheese. Just like you, you and I buy it. No, I'm joking. You know, no. It may have not been cottage cheese. It was something. The point is that they ate. When the angels go to Sodom and Gomorrah, the Bible says that the men desired them. So they clearly mistaken, mistook them for uh, flesh and blood. So angels, uh, uh, there, there are some things that we would know about angels, but, but with all of that, nowhere do, does Scripture suggest that angels marry. In Matthew chapter 22. You are reading my mind. He's so good. Let's go there. Matthew 22 and 30. Get Matthew 22 and 30 for me. And here the Lord speaks. Thank you. That's a great point. The Lord speaks and He says, Brother Ryan, you don't have a microphone, do you? You do. Okay, perfect. You're ready. Good. I forgot to have you read. Here you go. Can you turn on his microphone? There we go. You're good. Here it is. For in the resurrection... In the resurrection, he's talking about us after this life. They neither marry... Yes. ...nor are given in marriage. Yes. But are as the angels of God in heaven. But are as the angels of God in heaven. So it's implying here that... uh, and specifically highlighting, we don't marry and we are not given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. So that's going to blow out some uh, other cultic interpretations of Christianity that believe that you're going to have all kinds of marriages in heaven. Because this either Jesus is right or he's wrong. He says they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but... But then he uses this phrase, but are as the angels of God in heaven. So look at the obvious point. Now on a technicality, someone would argue, well, he said the angels of God in heaven, but that doesn't mean that the angels of God in earth aren't able to. I think that is a stretch that I'm not willing to to take on that per se. My fifth point to consider is this. Why would fallen angels still be called sons of God? Why would fallen angels be called sons of God? Now here's where uh, uh, the concept comes from. In in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, Is it verse 4? Go to verse 4. 
it says there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that. Now let's just stop with that phrase and see what that's trying to communicate to us. In verse 3, it tells us, God says, my spirit's not always going to strive. Man's days are going to be 120 years. Yet his days shall be in 120 years. So there seems to be something's going on there, and God gives a time limitation. He's trying to stop something. Uh, and when I say try, not in that he's making a failed attempt, but he's, he's invoking something here. And then the next verse it's stating a fact. It never says the giants came from the sons of God and the daughters of men. It's just stating that there, are, there were giants in the earth in those days. Now that word there translated Nephilim, some argue over the meaning, but most generally agree that it refers to fallen ones. It means fallen ones. They've fallen. And so from that, people say, oh, well, you know, this is how we get to the fallen ones here. So the giants in earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God. So it's, there is an implication. There's giants already. But after this, there also seem to be some giants, or at least humans that are superior than your average humans. So this is significant. This is interesting that there was something, and of course, this is all pre-flood. This is all stated pre-flood. So my question going back to that is why would fallen angels, if they really are fallen angels, why would they be called the sons of God? And one of the answers to that, somebody supposes, and this is a whole lot of supposition, that there were more than one falling out in heaven. That angels fell the first time, but now we're seeing another time where the angels fall. And this is what that is stating. But we're, we're having to draw a whole lot of stuff around Scripture. And I think that any time you write down a Scripture and you don't understand it, and to explain it, you've got to write a whole bunch of other things, I think we are in dangerous territory. And for me, it is better to say, I don't understand fully what this is saying, but here's what I am confident that it is saying. And we can state that. So I think we have to be good stewards of Scripture in that. There was something that happened. After that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, they bear children unto them. He's okay. He's just excited. He may even have a call of God on his life. So there was something significant that takes place in that. So in my sixth point is, uh, uh, my fifth point was, why would fallen angels still be called the sons of God? My sixth point to consider is that the giants, and I got ahead of myself, the giants of 6-4 are not the offspring, but rather they note the way pre-fall man was versus ungodly man. Jesus said, the day that you eat of it, God says, the day you eat of this, you shall surely die. Adam and Eve eat of it, and death begins, but they didn't die in that 24-hour day. Adam lived 900 years. Even though death, the process of death had begun in him genetically, he still lived a long time. So the, uh, 
it, it took a long time, and it wasn't until after the flood that the lifespans dramatically shortened. That could be a lot of things. That could be environmental. That could be a lot of other things. It could have been genetic. But when we read Scripture, an interesting thing that we note in Scripture is that when God created everything, it was perfect. And now all of creation has fallen into degeneration. Scripture teaches that the world is falling into degeneration. That is absolutely contradictory to what evolution supposes. Evolution supposes that out of chaos and confusion, the world and man and the earth is getting better and better and stronger and greater and greater and greater. And the Bible denies that. Now, our technologies and our advancements and our cultural hygienes and other things have allowed us, amen, to get back to, to the lifespan that, that is, is noted in Psalm. But here we see that there were, there were something significant that's happening in the beginning. Adam and Eve, for them to live a long time, not only did they live a long time, they didn't have cars, they didn't have automobiles. How did they travel the world? How did they go around? They, 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 uh, uh, even, even uh, archaeologists, anthropologists, whatever, and all of those studies tell us that ancient man, uh, the way, it's interesting that we find in ancient man's repertoire, we've, we find that he was a meat eater of animals even before he had the tools, the modern tools that we know, like bows and arrows and spears and, and things trapped to be able to capture those animals. And one of the prevailing, is in the book Born to Run, one of the prevailing thoughts in that was that um, ancient man had the capacity to run forever. And, and, and he could literally outrun the animals in those days. The animals would wear out. It makes sense in perfect science. And so it's, it's funny when you listen to the world, they actually will disprove themselves if you'll listen long enough, the scientists. Ancient man... The human being is the only, and this isn't in my notes, so I'm taking extra time. I'm digressing. The human being is the only creature on earth that can breathe independent of its stride. When you go to the cheetah, when you go to the dog, whatever else, that, that animal, that beast, it can run in fast spurts for a short amount of period of time. And then it has to stop because it cannot get enough oxygen into its body for it to endure. But the human being is the only creation that has this ability, this capacity to endure. And we are living way below our potential. It's, it's embarrassing today how, how modern man is living. Like we're fighting for the first parking spot next to the door at Walmart. I cannot survive if I have to walk across the parking lot. But what they have discovered or what they have, the only theory that's made sense to them is that the way ancient man was able to eat antelope was he just outran them. He ran and kept running and kept running and kept running and kept running until that thing fell over gasping for breath and the meal was handed to him. The Bible teaches and supports this, that man was strong in his ability and that we are getting more degenerate today. And if you study genetics, there's no way 
no way, if you really are a true study student of genetics, that you could ever believe that somehow two beings are going to produce something that they don't already possess within their resource. It's not plausible. And so what we do observe is never the new adding of genes, but the degeneration of genes. And that is, the real, that is one of the prevailing reasons why we have laws on the books against marrying your siblings and your cousins because the gene pool as such is so reduced that it has negative effects upon the children. But if you go back to the very beginning of creation, Adam and Eve were it. All genes that ever exist and all of humanity everywhere throughout all of time, Adam and Eve possessed. That's a whole lot. And so that's why it makes sense that they were able to procreate and multiply. And this verse is stating there were giants, and after the sons of God connected with the daughters of men, there were also more. There's already giants, but now there's more. And so from that, my fifth conclusion, by the way, or my fifth point for you to observe before I go to my conclusion, my fifth point is whoever these were, they all die in the flood. So it doesn't matter a whole lot because they didn't make it. They weren't tall enough. They couldn't swim long enough. So my conclusion is this. This is my conclusion of my interpretation. And I do know that it is making a, a break with the traditional Jewish interpretation because of the phrase sons of God, traditionally being interpreted in an angelic state. Well, we see that use in the New Testament often. In fact, Jesus himself, or, or Paul writes, or not Paul, John, sorry, John writes in his gospel of Jesus that as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. And we are the sons of God today. We are very much not angelic. Turn to somebody and say, you don't look that good. We are not angelic. So, as a little tongue-in-cheek, just playing around with you there. Not to offend. You still look good, but we're not this angelic being. We're flawed flesh. So, there's a significance here. My interpretation would be that the sons of God would be referring to those righteous men of Seth who do, who are still keeping themselves, calling upon the name of the Lord, and something happens, they lust after their eyes. The emphasis of this passage is upon man, it's upon flesh, it's upon men. They lust after, after the flesh with their eyes, and they take unto them, they fall down, steeped into ungodliness. And there's also an implication here that there is inferior human beings, the giants would imply that there was some kind of a significant ones, but they're, they're called fallen ones, perhaps. And so here these other ones come, and, and they're fallen. So 
So this is what it's noting. There's, there's fallen ones that are in the earth and, and, and they come together and there's more and they become these mighty men, men of renown. Now, I don't know exactly how all that looked and I don't know how it all played out. I do not have a problem if someone does not believe that and they think it's one of the other interpretations because, as I said, they all die in the flood. And there's a significance there in that passage. Man falls into wickedness. Man falls into wickedness. And this perversion and this wickedness perhaps, perhaps is greater than than the world would ever see again. I know it's going to be, he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of man be. And I do believe that that, but if you go back and you look at that passage, he is talking about the suddenness and the imminence with, with, with which the Son of Man shall return. He, he is talking about uh, 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 the swiftness. He talks about it Lot. When, uh, uh, he, he says, even as it was in the days of Lot, they're just going about their day, and then, boom, all of a sudden, brimstone, fire and brimstone fall. He says, they're going about their day in the times of Noah. They're marrying and they're giving in marriage. Now, God's not against marriage. And he says, and then all of a sudden, when Noah is in the ark, boom, the flood comes. It's sudden. And so in that context of what Jesus is saying, he's saying that the coming of man is going to be as swift and as sudden as the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, as as the flood came upon the earth. And once that door was shut, it was shut. No man could open it. He's not necessarily saying that whatever the wickedness that was happening at that time, that God wanted to hit the reset button and God decides to only spare one family, Because that's what the text implies. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Not only is that a powerful statement in verse 8, but we also have to acknowledge what is missing. What's missing is anyone else finding grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I will tell you this, as bad as it will get, we have a promise that it will never get so bad that there's only one left. Because God says, I will build my church. I will have a church. You may feel all alone, but you will never get back to the place again where you are the only one But that is what Genesis chapter 6 is trying to tell us. The wickedness was so great that God resets with just Noah and your family. We could go into the implications of what that sexual perversion included because why would you ask then, was God willing to also kill all of the beast? and every creature, but he wiped it out. I think that the sin and the evil is implied here. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
don't, you don't even have to think very hard and long about how evil, because it was more evil than what you can think. That's what the text is letting us know. So much so that God says, it pains me, I can't stand it. Even God who knows He already has a plan for redemption says, no, we're stopping this. That's pretty significant. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What does this mean? Does this mean that Noah was evil? And then all of a sudden he converted? No, that's not what it's saying. It's not saying that Noah was evil and then he converted and all of a sudden found grace. What it's saying, when God repents, he can't stand to look at it. It pains him. There's no comfort. He can't find pleasure in any of his creation until he looks at Noah. And when he does, there's grace. There's grace. Grace, one interpretation of grace is God's willingness to make Himself known to us. When God sees Noah, He realizes to him, I can make myself known. To the rest of the world at that time, He couldn't find a place where He could make Himself known because man was so obsessed with himself that man wrote God out. Wow. I think it's pretty fortunate and pretty lucky, whatever, I know that's not a biblical term, to be alive in 2022 with all the wickedness and all the terror and all the tragedy of this world and to know God, to have His Word, to know His Spirit, to know Him, not just about Him and to feel Him, but to know Him. And when I read this, man... (laughs) Makes me want to make sure, not only do I want to know Him, but I want to make sure that I'm on the right side of everything that God has for me. So Noah is found as this lone survivor, his family. And we're going to come back next week, and we're going to, no, not next week. Next week is our business meeting right here. We'll have a great time. And we're going to be launching a month of missions next Wednesday night. Uh, So uh, February is going to be a month of missions. We'll have a missionary virtually with us as well at the end. And then we'll come back and we'll follow up with this. But the next time when we come back, we're going to be looking at the covenant that God establishes with Noah and how that covenant is established through obedience and faith. There's never been a covenant that God's established that was outside of obedience and faith. And so we're going to look at that. But I'm thankful today that God loves us. God is emotional. And if I would take anything home tonight, God is not indifferent to our actions. God is not indifferent to what's going on in our life. Would you stand together with me tonight? Amen. Do you love His Word tonight? Come on, can we thank God for His Word right now? Lord, in Jesus' name, I thank You tonight for Your Word. I thank You for Your truth. I thank You for Your Spirit. I thank You for every teaching, God, every lesson. God, every word that encourages and strengthens, every word that challenges, every word that convicts our life and our heart. And I pray tonight, God, that through this humble attempt that Your Word would be preeminent in each and every heart and life. Let us not fall into arguing over details, but God, let us all endeavor to be good stewards of Your Word. Let us will to walk in the Spirit, God. 
of your word. I pray for every man and woman, every marriage, every home, every family, every household, every individual tonight, that God, our life would be pleasing to you. That God, more than anything, when you look at our life, as opposed to all of the iniquity around us, I pray that there's grace in your eyes, that you can see a willingness to make yourself known to us. I pray, God, when you look into our heart, God, that there is a joy and not a pain, that there is a smile and not a cringe, Lord. And I pray, God, above everything, don't let us grieve your heart, but God, let our worship and let our praise, God, go up as a sweet-smelling savor. In Jesus' name. Can we just love the Lord together tonight? Lord, in Jesus' name. I love you tonight. I love you tonight, God, in everything that you do. And I praise your name tonight. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen, amen, amen. Amen, amen, amen. Are you thankful for the Word of God tonight? Amen, amen. We're going to take a few pauses in this series, I know we've got a lot more to cover. We're going to take a few pauses in it to cover other things in series, but I still believe in the in the power of Genesis chapter 1 through 11, just getting it into our hearts because this is foundational. Everything else stands on this, and that's why it's the most, most attacked passages and portion of Scripture ever in the Word of God. Amen. I love you. God bless you. I hope you're blessed.